Hey, Rose, it's Sean from Everything Allegedly. Hey, thank you for taking the time to meet with me today. I really appreciate it. I know what you must be thinking. Poor little rich girl. Well, yeah, I do know you're rich because I know you took that big-ass diamond. I want to thank you for your discretion. Oh, don't bother. I'm going to tell everyone about it. <laughs> Pardon me? I said I'm going to tell everyone about it. Yeah, I just want to make sure that you're not going to do anything stupid like, you know, throw it off of a boat or something like that. Anyway, Rose, let's cut to the chase. The real reason I'm here is because I want to know about the suspicious circumstances of Jack's death. You're being very rude. You shouldn't be asking me this. I mean, it seems like a reasonable question. You were like right there when he died. You know what I mean? <laughs> this is not a suitable conversation. Suitable schmootable, Rose. I know there was enough room on that door. <laughs> this is absurd. You don't know me and I don't know you and we are not having this conversation at all. Why not? Do you feel guilty? Like you murdered him? You are rude and uncouth and presumptuous and I am leaving now. Hey, 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 come back here. I'm not done asking questions. I got a few more questions for you. Please, come back, come back. You are so annoying. Yeah, well, I've been called worse. Stupid thing you're carrying around. It's just a digital recorder you know, for my podcast. So what are you, an artist or something? Yeah, or something. But uh, give it a listen. You you might like it. Here. These are rather good. Well, thanks, Rose. I appreciate that. They're uh, they're very good, actually. Thank you, Rose. You're you're too kind. Hey, make sure you hit that subscribe button. All right. Uh, well, well, well. Yeah, the, the, the topics can get kind of heavy. You like this woman. You used her several times. Well, I wouldn't say I like her. That's Hillary Clinton, and yeah, she comes up every once in a while in the podcast, I guess. I think you must have had a love affair with her. Oh, God, no, 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 no. Ooh, she's repulsive. <clears throat> and in fact, if you look right here, check, check it out right here. If you look right here, you can actually see... That she's a reptile. Uh, oh. Welcome back to Everything Allegedly, or should I say welcome to Everything Allegedly, as it is the first episode after our rebranding. The show is now called Everything Allegedly, and uh, I'm still the Conspiracy Guide, just the new name for the show. My name is Sean, and uh, thank you for listening today. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for listening to all the previous episodes, too. The last episode broke our daily download record, so it really, truly is humbling to uh, see it constantly improving, so thank you for that. And now, now that the show has a different name, feel free to share it without the shame. You can share it without admitting to your friends and family that you're a conspiracy theorist. I guess now... You're just a person who is into things that are only allegedly true. <laughs> uh, 
So anyway, speaking of things that are allegedly true, today we're going to talk about one of my very favorite subjects of all time. I love this topic. We're going to talk about the Titanic. It truly is a Titanic subject (laughs) in the world of conspiracy theories or things that are only alleged to be true. And it's got everything. I love it. Um, it's, it's history and mystery and engineering and money and robber barons. And it's just, oh, it's got it all. It's such a good one. I particularly love this subject because it's about the golden age of passenger ships. And I really, really love these kinds of ships. I really love this bygone era of travel and, um, it was uh, it was a real event. It was uh, something special to to get on one of these ships, and then I guess later on to um, get on an airplane and travel. You know, you you put on your suit and your hat, and uh, and you went and uh, traveled, and and the travel was uh, part of the experience. That is not the case today. Definitely is not the case today. Uh, if, if you go on a cruise ship these days, it, uh, I think it resembles more like a CAFO. Uh, CAFO is a concentrated animal feeding operation. That's one of those things you've seen in those videos that vegans love to post about how the cows are mistreated. You know, they stick their head through the fence and, um, or maybe it's like the pigs, the, uh, the pigs get slopped. And that's kind of what uh, cruise ships feel like today. And don't get me wrong, I'm a guy who is into uh, overeating, but <laughs> let's just say it's not the same experience that it used to be. And uh, man, airplane travel, oh, flying on flying commercial uh, air travel is like a city bus in the sky. Man, Spirit Airlines. Have you <laughs> have you ever I Spirit Airlines to me is like the Holocaust because never again. <laughs> That's how I feel about Spirit Airlines, never again. I flew Spirit one time and you know those videos where there's people like trashing a fast food restaurant and fighting and throwing stuff everywhere. There's just absolute chaos videos. That's what Spirit Airlines is like <laughs> with purple chairs. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah, that's, that, but you know what? It might not have even been the worst flight. Now that I think about it, I had this one flight from from Palm Springs back here to uh, New York City or back to New York City. And... Um, I think it was Delta. Oh, if I'm if I'm throwing the wrong airline under the bus, I don't know. But anyway, I was coming back from Palm Springs and I wasn't paying attention to my seat. So I ended up in the middle seat last row. Like, you know, your head is up against the bathroom. Oh, geez. And then that weekend or I was flying back after it happened to be the same weekend as the white party. And the white party is like this giant gay uh party that they throw out in the Palm Springs area. It's like, uh, it's like Coachella for gays. I mean, Coachella is gay enough, but it's like an even gayer Coachella. So anyway, uh, on both sides of me were like these two giant gay bears basically. And 
And they wanted to uh, they wanted to recall the events of the weekend. So that was the actual worst flight <laughs> I've been on. And uh, <laughs> sorry to get way off the subject. I'm I'm recalling my horrible travel stories. I guarantee the people on the Titanic had a worse travel story than mine. But <coughs> but yeah, travel. Woo. I don't miss drinking much, <laughs> but uh, on airplanes, because I am a terrible traveler. I just, I want the Ambien back. That's, I want Ambien for flying. <laughs> oh, anyway. All right. Enough about that, because I really do love this golden era of travel, this golden era, especially of these passenger ships. They're so cool to me. I love these steamships. On the mantle in my house sits a giant, a giant USS United States, which was um, kind of the last of this era of these giant steamships. It was the last passenger ship that was built entirely in the U.S. And it's also still holds the record for the fastest transatlantic crossing. It's it's uh, trans meaning go across the Atlantic Ocean. It doesn't mean that the Atlantic Ocean changed its gender <laughs> or anything like that. So, yeah, I think it did it in um, know, four days or something. I should have written down that stat. It would have been cool. But anyway, that's what I have on my mantle because I really, really, really love these ships. So this one, this subject, the Titanic, it just ticks all the boxes for me. But uh, one of my favorite parts about the Titanic story is that everybody knows it. Everybody knows about the Titanic, but actually nobody really knows about it because there's a lot more to the story than what you may have heard. And that is probably by design. The reason we all know this common story that's just become a part of, I don't know, the the American lexicon of tales or something, it might be because everything we know about the story of the Titanic came from a book called A Night to Remember. And that book just happened to be written by a CIA agent. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> or essentially a CIA agent, I should say. Uh, the guy's name was Walter Lord, and uh, he checks all the boxes for one of these uh, sort of deep stater scumbag types. He went to Princeton and then Yale, of course, and then uh, he was an employee or worked for the Office of Strategic Services, which the OSS was basically the precursor organization to the CIA. And like all these other deep state spooks, you know, he worked there and then he stopped working there, right? <laughs> That's what they always say. But of course, he never stopped working there. Once a CIA agent, always a CIA agent. But uh, that book came out in 1953 and he interviewed a bunch of survivors. It was a really successful book. He went on speaking tours, but essentially what he did was he crafted the story that we know today. So if you've seen the, you know, Titanic movie that I clipped for the intro of this, essentially that is 
based on like a uh, a fictional love story intermixed with that original tale of Titanic told by that book, um, A Night to Remember. And this kind of thing happens all the time. Uh, this kind of narrative crafting. I don't know if you've seen it. One of my favorite movies is The Social Network. I love, love, love that movie, The Social Network. Unfortunately, the movie is total bullshit and um, it's completely fake. That is not the way uh, Facebook was created. But that's not really why I like that movie. I like the movie because of uh, the way the way it feels, the way it sounds and everything. But that movie is based on a book called The Accidental Billionaires. And um, and uh, and it's it's not real. It's it's basically a fake story. So. So uh, you can put that one in the uh, fiction category uh, like you might be able to do with uh, A Night to Remember. I guess we'll we'll talk about it. And um, it's it is it is important to realize, like, who wrote that book. And, um, you know, if he was an OSS agent or CIA agent, um, because even the most basic details of what we know about Titanic could be a lie. Because what do we know? The Titanic sank, right? Or did it? Did the Titanic sink? Well, all we can actually say is that a ship did sink. About 111 years ago, last week, um, because we just passed the 111-year anniversary. So 111 years ago last week, a ship did sink in the Atlantic Ocean. But was it even the Titanic? I don't think it was. I don't think it was. So that's what we're going to talk about. Because I think that it was the Olympic that sunk that night and not the Titanic. Now, you may not have heard of this ship, the Olympic, but the Olympic was essentially a carbon copy of Titanic. It was Titanic's sister ship. Both of these ships were part of White Star Lines. That's the company that owned these ships. And we'll talk more about them later. But both of these ships, both the Olympic and the Titanic, were built right next to each other in a shipyard. And the Olympic was finished first, and this ship was doomed from the beginning. This ship had terrible, terrible luck. And if there's one thing about ships and boating and vessels is that luck and, um, I guess, superstition play a big part in, uh, in, in, in maritime, in sailing. And uh, so this ship was doomed from the beginning. It had really bad luck. And on June of 1911 was the maiden voyage for the Olympic. And only one week later, it had a crash. It had an accident in New York Harbor. And the accident was pretty bad because it almost sunk the other boat. The boat was a tugboat and kind of ran into the back of the ship. And the tug was nearly sank. They did get it out. But uh, it was a pretty bad accident, and uh, but it wasn't the worst, <laughs> and because just a couple of months later, in September of 1911, the Olympic had another accident, 
And this one was really bad. This one happened in Southampton, so in the UK. And the ship that it hit, or the ship that hit it, (laughs) depending on the account of the story, was a ship called the HMS Hawk. And the HMS Hawk was a military vessel. And it hit the rear starboard side of the Olympic. And it put a giant hole in the Olympic, uh, like above the water a couple decks, below the water a couple decks. It caused a lot of damage to the Olympic. And (coughs) the real big problem with this accident was, like I said, it was with a military vessel. And so because it was a military vessel, it gets investigated by the military or the, the British Navy, essentially. And um, they claimed that the Olympic was at fault. And so, again, it kind of depends on, you know, who you're asking. But when the military says you're at fault, I guess you're at fault. Many did say otherwise, but how are you going to argue with the British military in their waters? What are you going to do, right? So as a result of the ruling by the uh, British military, by the Navy, as a result of their ruling, the White Star Lines insurance company wouldn't pay the claim. Um, I believe it was Lloyd's of London at the time. We'll we'll get into more of that later. But the uh, they weren't the insurance company wasn't going to cover the damage because the Navy said that. that it was the Olympics fault. So the ship was really jacked up. I mean, it was in bad shape. It was a serious accident. The accident, um, like I said, it tore a giant hole in it. It it tore off a bunch of steel plates, thousands of rivets, and it, uh, it bent the propeller shaft, which on these ships is a massive thing. And it also bent the keel. The keel runs down the center of the, of the ship. And, um, as far as I can imagine it, this seems like a giant problem because I don't know how you would straighten it out. Even in a regular passenger vehicle, if you bend the frame, it's nearly impossible to fix. You have to take the entire car apart and you have to use a rack that has lasers on it. And essentially people just don't do it because it's such a involved process that you just scrap the car and get a new one. The, the insurance just totals it out. So essentially, that's what the Olympic had. It had the uh, ship equivalent of a bent frame. And uh, they couldn't just scrap it because the insurance wasn't going to pay for it. So like I said, huge problems with this ship. And the ship kind of leaned to one side a little bit after that. And um, interestingly enough, and and like I said, we'll get to it, but interestingly enough, uh, there are accounts from the maiden voyage of the Titanic where people said that the ship was leaning. Very interesting Uh, (laughs) little uh, preview of things to come. So anyway, the damage to the Olympic, it took two weeks to repair just temporarily. It took two weeks just to patch it up enough to get it home um, to the, to the shipyard. 
So the Olympic limped back with its repairs, um, its temporary repairs, back to Belfast, to the shipyard where it was built, and Titanic was still there. Because like I said, they were being built right next to each other, so they kind of pulled the Olympic in right back next to Titanic. And um, we should talk about the shipyard now. The shipyard was called Harland and Wolf, and this shipyard was massive. It was a massive, massive complex and they were the exclusive builders for the International Mercantile Marine. Now, the International Mercantile Marine, the IMM, it was owned by J.P. Morgan. You know, uh, sort of your quintessential robber baron scumbag. And um, there was a bunch of companies underneath the IMM, or I should say within the IMM, a bunch of shipping companies and uh, passenger ships. A lot of different companies were underneath that IMM umbrella. And IMM also owned Harland and Wolf. So they're kind of all mixed together in there. But the White Star Lines, specifically the company that owned Olympic, Titanic, and then Britannic, well, this was a new venture. They had planned for these three ships. So White Star Lines was a new company that was meant to be ultra luxurious shipping travel because ocean travel or transatlantic ocean travel at this time was kind of a really dirty and dangerous affair. These ultra rich people, they had like their own yachts and stuff generally, but most of them weren't capable of these kind of transatlantic routes at this time. This was before people like Jeff Bezos was building billion dollar ships and stuff and removing bridges to get it out to the ocean and stuff. So, so there was a need for luxurious transatlantic ocean travel and they were going to fill that need. And also it was kind of a, uh, it was kind of a shady business at the time. There was, a lot of accidents, safety was really poor with this kind of travel, and it was rife with fraud, and insurance scams were really, really common. And the White Star Line was meant to be this kind of crowning jewel of ocean travel. So if you can imagine, uh, this was a brand new company shelling out millions of dollars. I know it doesn't sound like a lot today, but millions of dollars to build a new state-of-the-art luxury ship. And then just three months later, the ship is completely worthless. It should have been scrapped and, um, and the insurance isn't going to pay for it. But remember, now the two ships are right next to each other in the same shipyard that they were built in. It's parked right next to the twin ship, the Titanic, which is still being built. So they get to work doing the real repairs on the Olympic, um, not just the temporary ones they had already done. And they borrowed a propeller from Titanic. At least they meant to just borrow it. Um, and they got it all, you know, ship shape, <laughs> I guess you could say, to get her back out to sea or just barely back out to sea. Because they had to do that because the ship was on a schedule and every minute it spends in the shipyard, they are losing money on this already, you know, terrible investment at this point. And wouldn't you know, 
there was another accident. So they got the poor Olympic back out to sea. And in February of 1912, there was another accident. And this time it damaged the same propeller that they had just put on. And it actually broke off one of the blades that, um, like I said, that they had just put on. So they had to get it back to Belfast, back to the shipyard again, and they had to do it on just one engine because you can't run a propeller with a uh, with one of the blades missing. So in March 2nd of 1912, it was back in the dry dock and all they had to do was swap out a repeller because it hit a wreck like it, it went over a previously wrecked ship and that's how the propeller got knocked off. But the reports say that there was no additional damage to the ship, just that propeller. So they should have just been able to switch out the propeller. And based on documents and stuff from the time, this should have taken about five hours of work or something like that. Because again, the ship sitting in the, in the you know shipyard, they're losing money. So it was real expensive to just have these things sitting around. They were on a schedule, but the Olympic wasn't there for five hours. The Olympic was in dry dock for four days. So what happened during these four days while the two ships were right next to each other again? Well, I think this is where the switcheroo happened. I think this is where they took the two ships and they swapped them around and made the Olympic the Titanic and the Titanic into the Olympic. Because after all, they were twin ships. So, you had this brand new, very expensive, but now worthless ship, which was functionally wrecked. And you have another ship, which is a good ship. It's straight. It's got uh, proper function, it's brand new, and it has years left of profitable service. So, what do you do? I mean, what would the plan look like? The plan would be to sink the worthless ship under the name of the new ship and collect the money, all the while keeping the good ship around for years and years of service. Because, think about it. If the story went down the way they said it does, Titanic sank, the original Titanic, which is a brand new and perfectly functioning ship, and then White Star Lines was left with the completely wrecked POS that had been crashed three times now and was barely functional. So you can see why the motivation was there to switch the the ships around. And in fact, from this point on, When I say Titanic, when I'm referring to Titanic, I'm actually going to be referring to the Olympic unless I specify otherwise, because once the switch happened, the Titanic was the Olympic. And so that uh, that meeting of the two ships in March of 1912 would have been the last time that the two ships were together. And then basically a month later. April 15th was when a ship sank in the Atlantic Ocean. And again, I think that ship was the original Olympic. Now, which one was it? Which ship sank? Was it the brand new one or was it the worthless (laughs) liability called the Olympic? 
because it was a liability. It was a real liability for the company. The Olympic would have been a huge problem because it could have bankrupted the White Star Lines and subsequently Harland and Wolf. Because remember, these all these companies were were completely intertwined. The uh, the White Star Lines venture could have actually taken down Harland and Wolf. And at the time, Harland and Wolf had a like I said, it was a massive complex with a huge amount of employees. Uh, the documents range anywhere from 20 to 30,000 employees. It was a giant operation. So I think they switched them. I think they switched the ships to get rid of that liability. And the, uh, the time they spent together in the shipyard, that was over a weekend. So they could have pulled off the switch over the weekend. And it actually would have been fairly easy to do, in my opinion. All of the china and the linens and the kind of consumable items, those weren't branded to the ship. Because they were trying to create this new company, the brand was White Star Lines, and White Star Lines was to be associated with luxury. All of the items like the china, the linens, the towels, all that stuff was branded for White Star Lines and not necessarily the ship itself. So they were interchangeable um, between the ships. So what made the ships distinct were the names on the ships, the lifeboats, the menus, the stationery, things that would have been pretty easy to ship or to uh, switch. And um, there were some, some other differences in the ships, uh, some things like flooring and stuff. One of these uh, notable differences, uh, the Titanic had, now again, I, I got to specify because it's confusing, right? The, the brand new Titanic would have had these um, uh, different flooring, but the before Titanic made its maiden voyage, uh, they were ordered to carpet the floors. So there could have been other changes that were made, but for the most part, it was it was the, the really identifiable things were really only the lifeboats. There were um, and name badges on the lifeboats and then just the names on the ships because the ships were, like I said, sister ships. They were identical. But could you actually get people to do this? Could you get the crews in that shipyard to actually pull off this switch and not tell anyone about it? And I think, yes, I think you could have done it in those days. These companies were really powerful. In these days, there was no such thing as social security. And if you didn't work, you didn't eat. The companies were really powerful and they had a habit of threatening entire families saying, if you don't toe the line, if you don't do as we ask, not only will you not work here ever again, but nobody from your family will ever get hired again. And so people followed the rules because there was no safety net. They had to work. And these ship workers, these dock workers, um, shipyard workers, they worked really really hard and uh, they didn't make a lot of money. So they would have welcomed uh, a big bonus to make this switch. Also, it is important to note that at this time, 
the country was already gearing up for World War One. When I say the country, I mean uh, Great Britain was already kind of in a World War One mindset. So they had something called the Official Secrets Act, which at that time included ships and, uh, you know, vessels and, and whatnot. And so there could have been an actual legal penalty for talking about what happened in these shipyards. So were the ships switched? I think they were. But let's just say that they weren't. Let's just assume that everything is as it was claimed to be and the brand new ship sank. Let's just assume there was no funny business at all. Now, um, Olympic was a disaster. And now you have a brand new ship, presumably, right off the showroom floor. Who should you get? to captain this brand new ship. Well, how about the guy who just wrecked the last brand new ship three times? (laughs) Yep, the same guy. The same guy, Captain Edward E.J. Smith, who was like essentially a known drunk. That's who they got. So let's say there was no funny business. Olympic was just literally wrecked three times. Now they have this brand new shiny ship and they're like, who can we get to sail it? How about the guy who just jacked up the last ship? It doesn't sound very believable to me, but that is, you know, what happened. So either we're to believe that after wrecking this, uh, this last brand new ship, they just turned it right over to the guy who, who did that thing, the, the brand new ship or, or, They knew (laughs) that Captain E.J. Smith owed them something. They knew that he would play ball, and they knew he would participate in their scam of switching the ships. Because it would appear that, um, that a lot of people knew this was happening. Now, they were scared to talk about it, especially the low-level dock workers. But, um, but it would appear that word at the time had gotten around because work was kind of tough to get, but there was some funny business that happened. Now there were only two firemen that signed up for the transatlantic crossing on the new Titanic. Now at the time, these employees were contract employees. You basically signed up for each individual trip and Work was tough to get at that time. There was a coal strike which was happening. And when I say two firemen signed up, these are basically the guys that uh, shovel the coal in and stoke the fires of these steamships. And um, only two of them signed up. So when the ship came into Southampton, a bunch of them got off. All of them essentially got off. And only two of them signed up for the next trip. And that tells me that they knew something was up. That word had gotten around that they had pulled a switch on these ships. And uh, there was also a chief officer on the Titanic who wrote a letter to his sister right before leaving for the Titanic maiden voyage. And his letter said, in quotes, I still don't like this ship. Those are odd words for a guy who hasn't sailed on a ship yet. Um, Don't you think those are strange words? Why would you write, I still don't like this ship when you just got on it? 
Hmm. Very peculiar. Now, at the time that uh, Titanic was leaving on its maiden voyage, another ship was leaving at the same time. This ship was called the Californian. And oddly enough, this ship was taking the same route as Titanic, but it didn't have any passengers on it. It had no passengers and no cargo, except for a bunch of sweaters, <laughs> which would come in handy, I guess. Uh, so no passengers, no cargo, a bunch of sweaters. And what they did was they steamed out to the middle of the North Atlantic and then, and then they just stopped. They just stopped and they were waiting. Hmm. What were they waiting for <laughs> on the, on the night of the 14th hanging out there now on the night of the 14th, because it, it took a, a, a day or two to get out there. Uh, the Titanic did anyway. There were several messages on the night of the 14th from the Californian to the Titanic. And these messages were specifically addressed to Captain Smith. And what they were doing was they were letting Captain Smith know the exact location of the Californian, which again was a completely empty ship with no passengers, no cargo, just a bunch of sweaters. So, why was the ship stopped there? Why was the ship uh, constantly um, sending messages to Captain Smith? It makes no sense at all. It makes no sense unless you think, I think, that the Californian was waiting there for the Titanic, which they knew would be sinking that night. Unfortunately... The radio operator on the Californian fell asleep. So on the night of the 14th, and remember, Titanic sank on the 15th because it was it sank at 2.20 a.m., but uh, the night of the 14th is the night of the incident. So this radio operator fell asleep. Not good. <laughs> that is definitely bad if, uh, if that ship was waiting around to rescue people. So the Titanic or the Olympic, that night hit an iceberg, right? That much is true. <coughs> but based on reports of the time, or I guess I would say data at the time, the ship should have had plenty of time to alter its course. It shouldn't have hit the iceberg. And in fact, not just based on data at that time, based on testimony after the fact, they should have had plenty of time to correct their course and to uh, not run into this iceberg. Because once this iceberg was spotted, the first officer who was in charge of the ship at that time ordered the ship to be turned hard to port and to reverse the engines. So essentially what this move did is not a good move and it would rotate the ship and turn the ship broadside to the iceberg. So if you can imagine the ship kind of spinning on its middle axis and then facing the iceberg, not head on, but in sort of a diagonal um, uh, facing to that iceberg because... Um, because a ship of this time 
would actually be able to hit an iceberg head on. So if you hit the the iceberg head on, even if it was a giant iceberg that stopped the ship completely, the ship would be able to survive it. It would have damage and uh, there would probably be some injuries, but the ship wouldn't sink. But turning the ship sideways would really pull the damage all the way down the side of the ship, exposing these bulkheads and really ripping it open in a way that would sink the ship. Now, the dude may have known what was going on, this this first officer, because he was handpicked by Captain Smith. Interestingly enough, uh, the accounts of Captain Smith say that he was doing something that night that was not typical of him. He was sleeping in his clothes in the chart room, which is the room right behind the bridge. And so this was not typical of him. It's almost as if he knew he would be woken up um, just uh, in a short time. You know, he he didn't change his clothes. He slept in his clothes. Uh, also, the captain of the Californian just happened to be sleeping in his clothes, too. So just some other little tidbits for you there. Now, it's also important to note that ships don't really hit icebergs and sink. It's kind of not really a thing that happens since Titanic. The last 111 years, I think there's been like three and there were almost no deaths. So that should give you an idea of just how very rare this incident would be because these ship captains, these crews, they sailed through these ice fields all the time. They knew how to navigate them. They knew these ships like you and I know how to drive a car. And so they absolutely know what they're doing and they know the capabilities of the ship and they they navigate these things all the time. So it is important to note that hitting an iceberg and sinking a ship is completely atypical. It doesn't happen. And it's also important to note that when they hit this iceberg, It wasn't typical of a sinking ship or a distressed sinking ship because, in fact, nothing really happened for a long time. For 35 minutes, there was no panic. There was no alarm. Nobody really did anything. And other than the crew and the bridge, um, nobody was really even alerted and had no idea what was going on. It was really cold, so nobody would have been outside. None of the passengers would have known what was going on. And um, that's probably, the the officers weren't panicked because they probably thought they were going to get rescued. They probably thought that the Californian was uh, very close. It had been transmitting its uh, location all night, so... They assumed the Californian, which was empty and had no passengers and just a bunch of comfy sweaters aboard, would be there to to rescue everyone. And so they didn't uh, they didn't see it fit to even worry about this uh, this iceberg strike. So for 35 minutes, nothing at all happened. It was uh, it was 35 minutes before the first distress signal. It was 35 minutes before even a radio transmission. It was 40 minutes until they started the pumps to try and, I guess, mitigate the uh, water egress in the ship. And uh, it was 45 minutes before they even got to a lifeboat. And it was an hour and 25 minutes before the first lifeboat was even launched. So you can see there, there wasn't a lot of urgency. 
I think they thought the situation would play out much differently than it actually did. And um, the issue here is that, remember, the Californian had been uh, transmitting its location all night. But unfortunately, in addition to that radio operator on the Californian falling asleep, well, the the navigator on the Titanic also had miscalculated their own position. So the Titanic ended up being more than 12 miles away from where they actually thought they were, from where the Titanic thought that it was itself. And so because of that, they probably thought they were right next to the Californian. They probably thought they would have been in view of the Californian, but uh, they weren't. But because they thought that was the case, that was probably the reason that they weren't panicked. They thought the ship was right there and it was going to be there to pick everyone up. Now, another strange thing about the the Titanic uh, uh, accident, the crash, is that after it hit the iceberg, they stopped immediately. Uh, Essentially, they hit the iceberg and then they cut everything off, all the engines. And um, the weird thing about that is that at that time of the iceberg strike, they were actually in view of another ship. The um, the uh, uh, um, Titanic saw in the distance in front of them another ship that they probably thought was the Californian. It actually wasn't the Californian, but presumably if you hit an iceberg and you saw that there was another ship just a couple of miles off of your bow, you would probably steam towards it to get closer to that other ship. Again, it wasn't the Californian, but it would seem that your natural course of action would be to keep going to try and get towards another ship. But they didn't do that. As soon as they hit the iceberg, they cut all the engines and they just basically sat there. Again, 35 minutes before they did anything at all. So, um, the, uh, the Californian captain, his name was Captain Lord, which is so interesting, right? Because the guy who wrote the book, the guy who wrote the book about, uh, the, like the official story of the Titanic, his name was Walter Lord. Anyway, I don't know if there's anything there, but the captain of the Californian, his name was, uh, was Captain Lord. And he basically woke up the sleeping radio guy. But at that time, it was already too late. It was um, it was already too late. The guy had basically slept through all of the Titanic distressed signals. And essentially, because uh, that guy was asleep, because the Californian was never able to sail over to the Titanic, um, presumably to do its job which it was there to rescue the passengers so that the ship could be sunk and collect the insurance money because that radio officer was asleep and they were not able to get to the Titanic in time. We have the tragedy that we know today. 1,517 people were tragically killed that night um, in the water by, by drowning or freezing to death. As we know, the water was super cold and it would have only taken... Uh, two, three, four minutes for you to die in water that cold. It was an awful situation. 
Now, there was some surviving crew. And when they made it back, so, well, first of all, they went to New York. But on the way back, uh, on their way to New York, the first thing that those surviving crew members did was to make sure that they were on the next ship back to the UK, back to Southampton. Now, when the surviving crew members got back to Southampton, the first thing that they were made to do was essentially sign an NDA or a um, non-disclosure agreement. It may have had some of the that Official Secrets Act that I mentioned before. It may have had some of that language in it. But again, they were signing something that they weren't allowed to talk about. We do know that they were all basically quarantined for like up to 24 hours and either coached or whatever, but also made to sign these documents where they weren't allowed to talk about it. It was very politically messy. This sinking caused a giant political mess. And I think that the uh, governments, probably in both countries, but certainly in the UK, uh, I think the governments were involved in the cover-up of it. And so um, if you notice the uh, Titanic and and the Olympic, uh, they both carried the distinction HMS, which means Her Majesty's Ship. And the reason it was able to get this distinction, even though they were owned by uh, American business tycoon, uh, the reason they were able to get this designation is because there was an agreement that these ships could be used in wartime. So if a war broke out, uh, these ships could be uh, taken by the British government and used for their military operations or troop transports or whatever. But just know that that agreement was in place. And so uh, the British government would have had an incentive to keep these ships in her possession and not let them go back to this American business owner and have them, you know, sold off or scrapped or whatever. So, like I said, the White Star Lines, Harlan and Wolf, they were on the uh, brink of bankruptcy. And so this uh, this scandal, this um, this issue for them of the Titanic sinking, it would have caused job losses in the hundreds of thousands. And like I said, if if uh, J.P. Morgan was to take possession of those ships, they would also lose all of those ships, even though they were already posturing for World War One at the time. So it would have had a lot of of uh, political ramifications for the people in charge if they didn't help cover up the situation. And so that's what many people believe. Many people believe the official investigation of the Titanic was just a giant cover up. Kind of like 9-11. <laughs> oh, kind of like 9-11 because the official investigation for 9-11, if you're not aware, is just a giant cover-up operation. So, um, and many times, oddly enough, during this in- official investigation by a crooked judge, <laughs> a bunch of times in that official investigation, the... Uh, the Titanic was actually mistakenly referred to as the Olympic <laughs> when people were like under oath. <laughs> it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like the, have you seen those videos of uh, Barack Obama <laughs> saying Mike 
when he's referring to Michelle. <laughs> it's kind of like that. <laughs> I guess it's kind of like that. In the end, after all of these investigations, the only person who got in any trouble was that guy, Captain Lord of the Californian. Probably because they were pissed. <laughs> Probably because they were like, hey, man, you were supposed to rescue all these people. There weren't supposed to be 1,500 deaths. You were supposed to be right there to pick them up and put their warm, woolly sweaters on them. It should have been simple. What were you doing? So anyway, he's the only guy that got in trouble. The White Star Lines was not found at fault for not having uh, enough uh, lifeboats or, uh, you know, having a, a ship that, you know, couldn't survive this strike or uh, n- none of the officers got in any trouble for their maneuvering. The whole thing was completely botched, but they couldn't be found at fault in any way. So the White Star Lines got off completely scot-free. In fact, they did better than scot-free. They did really good. Generally, at this time, the White Star Lines would insure their ships uh, to about 75%. So they were they were balancing insurance coverage and premiums because, like I said, at this time, there was a lot of insurance fraud in the uh, shipping industry. So uh, they would insure their, sh- their ships. It was typical. It was common for, for them or not white star lines, but I should say IMM, uh, because white star lines was a new venture, but, uh, the ships in the IMM fleet would be insured to about 75%. And then the other 25% they would take on as personal liability. <coughs> now the Titanic cost about $10 million to build. I know it doesn't sound like a lot today, but that's how much it cost to build the ship in uh, 1910. And so you would assume a $7.5 million payout from Lloyd's of London. But that's not actually what happened because the week before, just one week before, the insurance on Titanic was increased. And it was increased by a lot. Because Lloyd's of London actually paid out $12.5 million on a $10 million ship just five days after it sunk. That's about $400 million today. Not a bad payday. Also, again, I am reminded of 9-11 where there may have been some shady insurance dealings before the event. But anyway, I digress once again. So even that giant payout, even that 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 uh, large insurance payout that they got right after it sank, that they just happened to get because of an insurance premium increase just right before the accident. Well, that pales in comparison to one of the other reasons that I think the ship was sunk. Because the ship, the sinking of the Titanic may have contributed not just to millions of dollars in profits, but to trillions of dollars. That's right. Trillions of dollars. And that's because I believe the sinking of the Titanic was not just a shrewd business practice by a scumbag robber baron, but I believe that it was actually a ploy to rob the world of its finances. And that's because I believe the ship was sunk as a way to usher in the 
Federal Reserve banking scam. So, uh, in November of 1910, just you know, right before uh, the the Titanic incident. There was a meeting on Jekyll Island. Jekyll Island is an island off of, it's either North or South Carolina. I'm blanking on it right now. But anyway, it is an island off of the Carolinas. And there was a meeting on that island, Jekyll Island. And it was a top secret meeting. And it was basically organized by J.P. Morgan, although he wasn't there personally. And this top secret meeting was there to discuss the beginnings of, of the central banking system that we have today. The reason that this meeting was kept secret is because everybody at the time knew that central banking is a scam. And with World War I on the horizon, um, when you what they wanted to do was set up this federal bank, this federal reserve, this banking scam, because war is really good for bankers. And wouldn't you know it, right after they set up the Federal Reserve, they got the war. Yeah, that's right. So the way central banking works, if you're not aware, and like I always say, I promise I will do an episode on this, but the way central banking works in a nutshell is this private company, which we call the Federal Reserve, which is neither federal nor does it hold reserves of any kind, This institution, this private company, lends money to the United States government, which is the money that we all use. And so they lend it to them at interest. And and you can see that it is a giant scam because imagine this. Imagine the only money in existence is the money that I provide you. And let's just say I am called the everything allegedly central bank and I give you a hundred dollars, but I'm charging you interest on that. So if the only money in existence that you're allowed to use is my money, but I'm charging you interest on that money, let's say it's 6% interest. How do you pay me back $106? Because the only money in existence is the $100 I just gave you. But you owe me $106. So how do you pay me back? Well, you you pay me back in what's essentially a giant Ponzi scheme. Because as I create more money and feed it to you in this monetary pipeline, you are essentially forever in debt to me as your debt to me increases. I just keep giving you more money. So that's how, that's how central banking essentially works. And so pull out a dollar bill from your wallet. You'll see that it's a federal reserve note. That money that's in your wallet or that money that's all the ones and zeros in your bank account All of those are federal reserve dollars. Every one of those dollars was loaned to the federal government, which we are paying interest on. We are just paying interest on money that was created out of thin air by the federal reserve, which was a plan by all of these robber barons. Now, there was a few. Now, we'll get back to Titanic. There was a few, uh, we'll say, uh, powerful people that opposed the Federal Reserve plan. And 
they just happened to be a bunch of them on the Titanic uh, that that fateful night. These uh, these guys were Benjamin Guggenheim, Isidore Strauss, and John Jacob Astor. These were kind of the biggest names in the, um, I'll say, anti-Federal Reserve plan or Reserve Banking plan. Now, these guys weren't just champions for human rights and freedom and flourishing and stuff. They weren't opposed to it for that reason. They were opposed to federal banking because they knew that it was a scam. These guys were basically involved in hard assets. They were involved in mining and um, uh, clothing and and minerals and uh, and and stuff like. That. In fact, I'll go through it. So Benjamin Guggenheim. He was uh, from a, a, a wealthy mining family. And like I said, a bunch of hard assets. These are minerals. These are um, metals. They were smelting. And, um, and he was lost on the ship that night. They never found his body. He was uh, killed <coughs> on the Titanic that night. And he opposed the uh, federal banking. Isidore Strauss, he was the co-owner of the Macy's department store. So again, they sold kind of real assets. They were in the business of taking commodities and uh, manufacturing them and, and reselling them. In addition to that, this guy was very influential. He was a congressperson in uh, New York City. He had close ties with the presidents at that time. And um, like I said, really influential, really politically powerful and against central banking. His body was actually found, but uh, not his wife. His wife, by the way, Ida, she was a real ride or die because she actually was on a lifeboat. She asked for her husband to get on. They said, no, just women and children. And she said, uh, as we have lived so well, so will, so shall we die. And so she actually got off the boat and uh, they died together. Oh, it's like uh, it's like the notebook. The notebook always makes me cry. And then uh, the last guy on the boat, John Jacob Astor. Uh, the Astors were like a, a New York City or even a, a U.S. institution. This guy was the richest guy on the ship. The Astors, tons of money, like real estate fortune and stuff. If you think of Waldorf Astoria. I mean, that's where the Astor and Astoria comes from. Um, super, super influential, very wealthy, very politically powerful. And um, the they were against the uh, central banking. And um, his wife survived, but his body was never recovered. And um, there were quite a few bodies recovered. Get ready for it. The number of bodies recovered from the Titanic wreck 333. There's that number again. <laughs> 333 bodies were recovered from the Titanic wreck. But anyway, uh, as you can see, these guys weren't just rich guys. These were super influential guys who were all against central banking. And they were a major opposition, a major stumbling block for those who were trying to get the central bank scam. And, um, and it's weird that they were all on the ship. Uh, because there were 50 first-class passengers, 5-0, that's a lot, first-class passengers that that uh, canceled last minute. 
So what did these other first-class passengers know that they didn't tell those three guys? I don't know. Somebody wanted those three dudes on the ship. That's all I'm going to say. Even um, even J.P. Morgan himself canceled at the last minute, and um, he said that he was sick. But uh, but I think the next day they they found him in France with a hooker. Well, it wasn't. That's not what the news. They say they say he was with his mistress, <laughs> which is basically just a nice way of saying hooker at the time. He was with his hooker <laughs> in a uh, in a French chateau. <laughs> Some journalists found him. And they're like, hey, you're not sick at all. What's going on? Anyway, J.P. Morgan probably knew the ship was going to sink. And uh, he actually had a bunch of art removed from the ship. So, you know, ostensibly this guy probably had his own first-class quarters. He wouldn't have need needed to remove art. Ship could have just gone there and back with his art on it. But, but maybe he didn't want his art <laughs> to be at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> anyway, the, uh, the Titanic, when it was... Uh, it's maiden voyage had this big fanfare and that didn't happen with the Olympic. The Olympic just kind of, kind of was rolled out to a uh, much less exciting, um, christening and maiden voyage and everything. But for some reason, the Titanic was made to be this giant advertising and marketing campaign. And they were focusing that on the ultra wealthy people that they were trying to get on board. Perhaps, those three guys who were who were interested in stopping the central banking plan. But anyway, anyway, JP Morgan wasn't on the ship. He was in France. He was in France screwing <laughs> while 1500 people were killed and 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 we've been getting screwed ever since. <laughs> Thank you for that, JP Morgan. <laughs> Oh, so do I think the Titanic or the Olympic was sunk purposefully? Yes, I do think so. I think there was plenty of reason to do so. There were two gigantic, there were two Titanic <laughs> reasons to to uh, sink it purposefully. And um, I totally believe that, uh, you know, these uh, J.P. Morgan and people like this would, would do this perfectly. Of course they would do this purposefully. They are... They are scumbags and uh, everything else they do is completely reprehensible. Why wouldn't they sink a ship? Uh, you know, the central bank that they formed went on to fund both sides of both world wars. Now, that is about the worst scumbaggery I could imagine. Why in the world would you profit from a war, especially on both sides? So you're not ideologically aligned with one side. Yeah, I guess you just want to make money off of millions of people dying. Yeah, that sounds awful. So, hey, what's 1,500 people drowning or freezing to death in the North Atlantic? It pales in comparison. But it's also significant to think of the implications. I think it's significant to think of the implications of the sinking of the Titanic because it was the unsinkable ship. That is how it was marketed. It was unsinkable. So, when... When these robber barons, when the J.P. Morgan, when uh, these um, <clears throat> these central bank planners sank the unsinkable ship and killed their opposition because of it, well, that was a shot across the bow. That was telling anyone in opposition, listen up, we can do 
what can't be done. We can sink the unsinkable ship. And I think that's quite a statement. We will do the impossible to achieve our means. So stay out of our way. And um, what I just laid out here, because that's basically what I've got on Titanic. What I've just laid out here is kind of the narrative. But there's a lot more, I'll say, physical evidence that you can check out for yourself. Some of this stuff I will post over the next week or so. There was a lot more physical evidence that has to do with like the portholes. There were portholes on the bow of both ships. One of them had 14, one of them had 16. And you can see that there was definitely some switcheroo happening, uh, whether that is uh, proof that the ships were uh, switched at the time of the voyages. We don't know. But uh, there was also propellers. Remember, there was a lot of propeller switching. Well, one of those propellers has been photographed at the bottom of the ocean. So that is interesting. And in the 1980s, when they sent down a robot to view the wreck for the first time, uh, they went to the bow of the ship where the name should be. And now the names that were painted on was long gone at the time. So uh, the ship had been down there at that time for, I guess, uh, about 70 years or something. So the names on the ships were long gone, but when the ships were built, they actually had the names of them engraved into the hole. So when this dive robot was sent down to take video footage, when it went up to the front of the bow to take a look at the name of the boat, it only saw two letters. And the letters that were visible were M and P. And there's no M or P in Titanic. So anyway, (laughs) there you go. I hope you enjoyed this episode about the Titanic. I certainly did. It's one of my favorite topics, and I love talking about it. And um, the book for this week is a really awesome book. It's called um, HMS Olympic, and it's by a guy called John Hamer. It's a very, very good book about the topic one of the best that I've read. He goes really deep into the research, uh, research into the shipping yard documents and headlines from the time. Uh, Now, it's, it's an awesome book, but John Hamer writes about a lot of really interesting things. And so he is definitely on the short list of guests. I really want to talk about him. I hope he'll um, join the show someday for a talk with us. And, um, It's a really good book. So if you're interested at all in Titanic, uh, go ahead and give that book a read. It's really, really good. And, um, and, uh, and that's it. That's Titanic. And thank you for joining me on this, uh, this first episode of everything allegedly. And if you thought this episode was good, I would really appreciate a share and uh, really appreciate you help me getting the, uh, the episode and the podcast out there. Anyway, until next time, thanks for joining me. Bye-bye.
chance to drift for you to live your tender lips to mine. Tender 